So I'm Wouter Den Haan. It's uh, my pleasure to uh, introduce this evening's uh, speaker, Tim uh, Harford. Before I do that, uh, a couple announcements. Uh, please turn your mobile phone on silent. They always say it. Last time, in the middle of the speech, somebody's mobile phone did go off. That was a bit embarrassing, I think. Um, and Tim is sharp-witted, so he may say something if it happens again. I'll try. If you do want to tweet, this is that the hashtag is over there, LSE Harford. Uh, the event is being recorded, and if everything goes well, it will be made available on the website of LSE Events. After the event, you have the possibility to buy Tim's latest book, uh, the Undercover Economist Strikes Back. And the way it's going to work is you can buy it outside, and then Tim is going to stay on stage, and then you can get it signed right here on stage. So I think that's uh, where all the announcements I had to make. So this evening we're very grateful to have uh, Tim Harford as our guest. He's a senior columnist of the Financial Times, and if you look at the topics of his columns, he writes about almost anything, but I guess it's typically an economics angle. Uh, it's about house price bubbles, gender imbalances in economics, rats outperforming humans in picking stock, stocks. He's also a presenter on Radio, Radio 4. And I think this is your sixth time at LSE. Something like that. So please join me in welcoming you know, Tim Harford. Well, thank you very much. I, sh I should emphasise, by the way, that the, the bookseller outside, this is Pages from Hackney. This was set up uh, about 100 yards down the road from my home in Hackney. This is the, the local bookseller, so I do urge you uh, to go and buy something from them, even if it's not my book, because they're an absolutely fantastic bookshop. Um, anyway, enough of that. I, I, I wanted to talk to you this evening well, about a number of things, um, but I wanted to start by talking to you about uh, an amazing economist who doesn't get enough attention these days, but who perhaps 100 years ago, 90 years ago, was the most eminent, certainly the most famous economist in the world. His name was Irving Fisher. And just to give you a sense of, of Fisher's fame, when the Wall Street Journal was trying to explain who this John Maynard Keynes upstart was to an American audience. They were like, well, this guy Keynes, he's kind of like England's Irving Fisher. And actually, Keynes and Fisher uh, lived in some ways parallel lives. They were both born in the late 19th century. They were both superstars at university. Uh, Keynes won prizes for mathematics. Fisher won prizes. Actually, Fisher won prizes for maths, for classics, for debating for rowing. I mean, he's a great big strapping guy with a goatee beard. And he was a fitness expert, actually a health and fitness expert, as well as being a noted economist. So, so they had this early stellar career. Uh, they were both tremendously uh, charismatic speakers. So Fisher, as I mentioned, won all these prizes for debating. He would give these sellout talks. Um, Keynes, at one stage, a Canadian diplomat called Douglas Lepin saw Keynes speaking and then wrote in his diary, you know, is this a human being or an angel? 
This is the most beautiful person I have ever seen. That's the kind of effect that John Maynard Keynes used to have on people. Um, They were both uh, journalists, very successful journalists. Um, uh, Keynes, Fisher, uh, both published in the newspapers, both successful authors. Keynes, of course, wrote as well as his great general theory. He wrote these various polemics, very, very successful. Fisher wrote a number of books, including a book called How to Live, now that is a book, How to Live, by an economist. 500,000 copies he sold of that. What else did they have in common? Well, I'm afraid to say they were both rather enthusiastic eugenicists, but um, you know, it was the 1920s, so I'm afraid a lot of people were. And they both overcame tremendous uh, health problems. So Irving Fisher had tuberculosis, recovered from tuberculosis to live a very long and productive life. John Maynard Keynes famously had heart trouble, several heart attacks, and eventually it killed him. But, but not before he came back to this triumphant last act, uh, helping Winston Churchill run the British economy during the Second World War. Uh, they're really remarkable men. None of that is why... I want to talk about Fisher and Keynes. What really interests me about Fisher and Keynes, what really grabbed my attention about Fisher and Keynes, is that they they had this hobby in common. And the hobby was making money. And specifically, they had this vision that by mastering economics, macroeconomics, economic statistics... They could understand what was going on in the economy and therefore, by understanding what was going on in the economy, they could invest and they could become rich. So let me tell you a little bit about their their track record as investors, how they got into the investment game. And I'll start with Fisher. So Fisher's initial problem, late 19th century, is that he doesn't have any money. So his family were fairly poor, and when he went to Yale, his father died of tuberculosis the week he arrived at Yale. So you can imagine showing up at university, your father's just dropped dead, and you have to pay for not only your tuition fees, not only your maintenance costs, but you actually have to support your family through your earnings uh, as you work your way through Yale. It's not an easy thing to do. That's That's what Irving Fisher did. But shortly after he graduated, he, he acquired some money. And the way he did it, I recommend, it's a hot tip, okay? If you want money, this is the way to do it, okay? He married somebody with loads of cash. <laughs> so she was called Margaret Hazard, and she was the heiress. There were two sisters, and they were, they were the, the heiresses to a, a fortune made in uh, d- detergents and soap and so on. The, the uh, Hazard... Um, father of the family was, uh, was an entrepreneur and had set up this big soap manufacturing company. <laughs> and so suddenly they had money and they had this lavish wedding, there were you know, cakes about the size of this table and hundreds and hundreds of people came and there were three different priests officiating at the ceremony and then they had a little honeymoon, you know, just 14 months touring around Europe, the kind of thing that you do. Actually, um, Fisher came, made a lot, meant a, uh, he met a lot of the, the top economists in Europe. He, he at one stage was giving a lecture in Oxford and Francis Edgeworth, great Oxford economist, was sitting next to, to Margaret and Irving's talking and, and, and Edgeworth leans over to her and, and he says, Irving is flying. His reputation as an economist, absolutely remarkable at that point. People really understood this was a brilliant brain and he was revolutionising the way that economists thought about their subject, bringing more mathematics in, making it more rigorous, bringing more use of economic statistics in. 
And it was these economic statistics that launched one of Irving's first businesses. I mean, he, he, had, he had this money. He was living in a mansion in New Haven that had been paid for by his father-in-law. But he wanted to make his own money. So one of the things he started doing was gathering economic statistics. So he picked up data on prices and inflation. You didn't have good data on those things 100 years ago. Uh, and Irving started gathering them. He had an army of statisticians and personal assistants and research assistants on the top floor of this New Haven mansion. And pretty soon, that project, which was initially designed to inform his academic work, his academic ideas about prices, that project started producing cash flow because he realized he could sell this price data, prices, inflation. He could sell it to business people. He could sell it to the newspapers. And so he founded what he called the Index Number Institute. And this was producing indices of inflation. That's not the only way he made money. I mentioned he he wrote that book, How to Live, 500,000 copies sold in 1915. Now, now that's a useful chunk of change. And he also... um, he also invented, well, not to put too fine a point on it, he, he invented the Rolodex. Now, some of you are too young to know what a Rolodex is. It's kind of what we had before we had uh, smartphones. So Rolodex is a, an index card filing system. So you can just flick, 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 flick through the index cards and you can, you can see uh, very quickly which card contains the information that you want. Which 100 years ago, that's actually quite a big deal. It's a big invention. And actually, he didn't invent the actual Rolodex. That came later. But it was a precursor to the Rolodex. It was called uh, the Index Visible. And Irving decided he was going to go into business. He borrowed money from his father-in-law, and he set up a factory, manufacturing index visibles, or is it indices visible? I'm not sure. And pretty soon, there was a three-story factory churning out index visibles and making a tremendous amount of money. And then there was a buyout who was bought out by Rand, which was a stationary company, and then they were bought out by Remington. And so pretty soon... Irving had a directorship on the board of Remington Rand. He had stock options. He wrote back to a childhood friend amidst all of this, a childhood friend who'd known him when he, when he had no money. And one of the lines in this letter is, we are all making a lot of money. And he was pleased with that. He was, he was proud of that. He was very proud of the fact that he was able to renovate the family mansion and turn to his son and say... I did this with my money. It's not with your grandfather's money. I earned this money, and that is why I'm able to provide this this good thing for the Fisher family. And given the fact that Irving's economic statistics were being sold to the newspapers, and his economic commentary and forecasting was, was beginning to be syndicated across the United States, it would have been strange for him not to get involved in the investment business. And Irving was a real technological, uh, technology bull. He believed that technology, new technologies were driving increased productivity in the American economy. Uh, they were going to make the American economy boom and they'd make share prices boom. And, and investing in shares at the time was a fairly radical thing, but Irving did it and he encouraged other people to do it. And so all the way through the 1920s, the roaring 20s, the economy is growing, the stock market's rising, Irving Fisher is borrowing money, and Irving Fister, uh, Fisher is investing in the latest technology stocks. So that is Fisher. Let's talk about Keynes. So Keynes didn't need to marry into money, which is probably a good 
job. He, um, he had money. Uh, he had some money anyway. His father had some money and his friends had some money and their fathers had money and his father's friends had money. All of these people had money. And they could see in Maynard this great brain, but not only a great brain, but a man who was superbly well connected. So during the First World War, John Maynard Keynes had the ultimate insider's job. He was trading currency for the British Empire. Okay, that's kind of, you're going to learn a few tricks as you do that. And so immediately after the war, as well as writing some of his, these great, um, great pamphlets, these great campaigning books, he turns to his father and his father's friends and his friends and, and their fathers, and he said, give me money, and I will invest this money, and I will make us all rich. Well, richer. And they said, well, yeah, of course. Why not? Maynard's a very persuasive young man. He knows all these things. He understands all his economics. He knows all these people. They gave him money. And Maynard took it, and he started trading foreign exchange. And he made a killing. It's tremendously successful. And pretty soon, John Maynard Keynes was touring around France and he was picking up, you know, Cezanne's and Picasso's and Matisse's and various things. Not really as investments, but just because he was the kind of thing he, he liked to hang around his living room and uh, buying nice French leather gloves and all these things. And then, and then on one of these trips, he received a telegram. And the telegram announced that the German Deutschmark had moved not necessarily in accordance with economic theory. And they had lost everything. So Keynes then wrote to his father and his father's friends and his friends and his friends' fathers and said, um, sorry about that. <laughs> Give me more money <laughs> and I will make it all back. And they did. And he did. So... It's now 1921, and Maynard has already made two fortunes and lost one of them. And he then turns to the good fellows of King's College, Cambridge, where he is also a fellow, and proposes that they hand over control of the investment portfolio of King's College, Cambridge, hundreds-of-year-old institution, invested in all kinds of boring old stuff like timber and property and government bonds. Give control of that to John Maynard Keynes, and he will start investing in commodities and in equities. And uh, they thought that was a jolly good idea, and so that's what he started to do. And he had this plan. He, at the time, you know, the word macroeconomics hadn't even been coined, but John Maynard Keynes was inching his way towards a theory of the macroeconomy. And this theory was going to allow him to forecast the booms and the busts of the economy. He was going to be able to predict the ups and downs of the business cycle. And as he did that, he would be able to get in and out of different sectors of the economy. So invest in the pro-cyclical stocks when a boom was coming, and then invest in the counter-cyclical stocks when a recession was coming. And that was how he was going to make money for King's <coughs> College, Cambridge. And both Fisher and Keynes throughout the 1920s were making these bold bets on equities particularly uh, and also on commodities in the case of John Maynard Keynes. And what they didn't realise was come the summer of 1929, both of them were standing on the edge of a financial precipice. They absolutely did not see it coming. They did not see the Wall Street crash coming. 
The Wall Street crash, by the way, you put £100 in stocks, you get back £11. That's a proper crash. None of this rubbish kind of Lehman Brothers 2008. Not a, not a little crash. This is a really big crash. Okay? They totally missed it. And then the Great Depression, the shattering economic event of the 20th century. They missed that as well. The two greatest macroeconomists, arguably, who ever lived, they missed it all. So what does that tell us about our capacity to see into the future? Well, perhaps we shouldn't be that surprised. I mean, we know from experience that from time to time, economists have been known to miss recessions. So uh, there was a recent, uh, recent piece of research published by a couple of researchers at the International Monetary Fund. And what they looked at, they said, don't, don't tell us how well you do in predicting that the economy is growing and it's kind of growing like it was growing last year. Tell us how well you do in predicting that this year is going to be a recession. So it's September the year before, or it's January of the year in question. And, and in hindsight, it turns out there's a recession in that year. How often... Did you predict that? So they looked at various private sector and public sector forecasts around the world. Uh, in 2008, there were something like 63 separate recessions. Do you want to guess how many recessions the typical forecaster found? Zero. I mean, they didn't make up for it somewhat by forecasting 14 recessions the year after. There were only four recessions, but they, thought, you know, they were making up for lost time. But actually, it's, it's not just the economists. It's easy to stand here and to say, oh, the economists can't see into the future. But, I mean, sure, the economists can't see into the future. But then can any of us really see into the future? <coughs> I mean, consider one of the most wonderful pieces of social science conducted in the last 25 years, begun in the 1980s by a man called Philip Tetlock. So this, this research lit a time bomb under the entire forecasting industry that just went on a slow burn for 20 years. Now, Tetlock is not an economist. Tetlock is a, is a psychologist. But he'd grown tired of observing that when he talked to social scientists in general, to political scientists, sociologists, historians, uh, diplomats, spies, journalists, academics, economists, all, all sorts of people who had all sorts of different perspectives on this messy social world that surrounds us, so on geopolitics and politics and economics and that kind of thing. He talked to all of these world experts, and they repeatedly disagreed with each other about the future. So the, the issue that Tetlock was really interested in in the mid-1980s was the future of the Soviet Union. And half the Soviet experts he talked to said... Uh, Reagan's aggressive stance towards the Soviet Union is going to be catastrophic, and the other half said Reagan's aggressive stance towards the Soviet Union is going to force the Soviet bully to back down. Well, it turns out the second half were right about that. But Tetlock wasn't happy with that. He said, well, hang on, look, I am talking to the leading experts on what, what right now, 1986, right now is the most important issue facing humanity. This is, this is Armageddon, potentially. I'm talking to the top people, and half of them are wrong. I don't know which half, but I do know that half of them are wrong. And so Tetlock became fascinated by this question of expert forecasting, because he understood expert forecasting as being a way to understand expert judgment about the world around us, about economics, about politics. 
And so he started asking experts, nearly 300 experts in all sorts of disciplines. Some were academics and some weren't. And he asked them to make forecasts. And they weren't the kind of forecasts that you usually hear on the media. So remember, the, the sort of forecast you'll hear is, oh, well, you know, I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be, things are going to be very bad for Greece. Something like that, you know. Um, and that sort of forecast, well, in two, three years' time, you can go back and say, well, was that <coughs> forecast right or not? You could never really figure out whether the forecast came true. So Tetlock said, I want specific forecasts. They have to have a deadline, and they have to have objective criteria whereby we can say, after the fact, you were right or you were wrong. He collected 85,000 of these forecasts from his 300 experts. And here is the brilliance of it. He waited 18 years to see which forecasts came true. And this was all discussed in a brilliant and subtle, very painstaking book called Expert Political Judgment. It was published 10 years ago. Um, I'm going to summarize the book. And this summary is a little bit uh, of an oversimplification. The summary is, if you would like a geopolitical or economic forecast, pop yourself over to London Zoo, get yourself an orangutan, because it would be just as good as any expert in any field Male, female, optimist, pessimist, left-wing, right-wing, academic, practical, economist, psychologist, statistician, whatever. It doesn't matter. They're all wrong. We can't do it. The future is too difficult. Now, when Tetlock came up with this observation, uh, those people who were paying attention, and a growing number of people have been paying attention to Tetlock, said, yeah, that makes sense. That makes it, we, kind of, we kind of knew that. I mean, the world is full of recessions that haven't been forecast and wars that haven't been forecast and oil price booms and oil price busts that haven't been forecast. The world is full of bad forecasts. So we're, it isn't that surprising to discover that you know, the experts can't see into the future. And there was one person who didn't accept that rather defeatist conclusion. That person was Philip Tetlock. So a couple of years ago, on the rather auspicious date of the 1st of April, I received an email from Philip Tetlock inviting me to join in a competition, a forecasting competition. And it was being sponsored by the US intelligence services, IARPA, this big agency that throws money at weird research projects. And the idea was... that we were going to make geopolitical forecasts. So again, you know, what's going to happen in Ukraine? What's going to happen in the future of the Eurozone? There are political elections, economic factors, various things. Uh, and I and hundreds, maybe thousands of other forecasters were going to make fairly short-term forecasts. So, you know, what's going to happen by the end of 2015? What's going to happen by the end of this month in various uh, different uh, domains? And as always, the forecast would be highly quantifiable. But what Tetlock wanted to do, because he was going to have such a large field of forecasters, he was going to be able to pick out the forecasters who were actually able to do a good job. 
and follow them over time and check oh, it wasn't a fluke because of course some of them will be a fluke but follow them are you, are you continuing to make good forecasts and he would be able to run experiments so he could split this group into well some of them are working in teams and some of them get certain information and other people get different kinds of information and some people get a particular kind of training some people get another kind of training some people get no training and then all take personality tests and be able to see well they're the extroverts and the introverts and the highly intelligent people and the not so highly intelligent people, people with PhDs or not, all of these different combinations. What Tetlock has been found, finding over the last couple of years is that super forecasters do exist. Now, there are people who can see into the future. Now, I don't want to overstate this result because super forecasters don't get things right all the time. In fact, I don't think they're close to getting things right all the time. All we can say is they get things right more than the rest of us, which is to say they get things right more than the chimpanzees do. And, and they have another quality which the chimps don't have. So the, the real problem with your chimpanzee strategy or your orangutan strategy is the orangutan has absolutely no idea um, which of his forecasts are going to be uh, trustworthy or not. So the, the orangutan, the chimpanzee, is choosing totally at random. Now the expert not only gets to choose, not at random, but gets to choose on his or her view of the future, but also gets to say, well, I have a lot of confidence in this forecast, but I do not have confidence in that forecast. I'm just guessing here, but here I really feel that I know. And one of the qualities that the super forecasters have is they're very well calibrated. So when they say, well, you know, I think I'm 60% I'm confident in this, well, those sorts of forecasts, they come true about 60% of the time. And when the super forecasters say, well, I'm 90% I'm confident in this one, well, those kind of forecasts, they tend to get it right about 90% of the time. They come true 90% of the time. So even though they don't always get it right, they have a good sense of when they're going to get it right and when they're not going to get it right. So you're probably wondering at this point, well, what's the secret? What's the secret? Is it, is it, is it a doctorate? Is it, a, is it a particular political outlook? Um, is it a, you know, a, a training in a certain academic discipline? Well, it's none of those things. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are two or three elements that go into making up a super forecaster. And number one, I think it's really worth thinking about. So the project manager of, of this project, the good, the good Judgment Project, it's called, this massive tournament, the project manager told me, right, when I asked her, you know, what is the secret to super forecasting? She said, oh, just one thing, keep score. Just keep score. Because, of course, that is what the Good Judgment Project is doing. It is constantly going back and saying, well, what forecast did you get wrong last month? What about the, the month before, the year before? And supplying all of that information to the forecasters. And when you think about it, you realize that's incredibly rare. People come on the evening news and spout hot air about the future all the time. And it's very unusual that anybody will call them on it. I mean, maybe if there's a really strong political motive, you know, a, a politician who makes a forecast that's wrong, but just some random pundit who you know, steps up and says, well, you know, I think the euro's going to appreciate or depreciate. No one ever calls them on that. No, no one ever goes back and checks. And you start to realize that most forecasts are not actually attempts to see into the future. Sounds strange. Most forecasts are doing something else. Most forecasts are like the peacock's feathers. 
they are getting the chief economist of an investment bank on the evening news, where you get to see the name of the investment bank. Or they are providing a kind of you know, engaging perspective on a really difficult subject. So, you know, we could talk about uh, you know, the civil war in Syria. We could go through all the details. It's all very depressing. And it's complicated. It's really complicated. Or you could have someone say, well, I know a lot about Syria, and I reckon that Bashar al-Assad will be finished in the next six months. And you feel you have learned something about Syria. Actually, you've learned nothing about Syria but you feel that you have, and so you're entertained, and so you enjoy watching the TV program. Or, of course, another thing that forecasts do is they cheer for their own side in an argument. So we think we're going to win this vote. So we think Scotland is going to become independent, or Scotland is not going to become independent. We think the Conservatives will have a majority in the general election. We think Labour will have a majority in the general election. It's cheerleading. These are not real forecasts. So we, we shouldn't be surprised that these forecasts end up not being very good. So keeping score is important. But there's more to it than that. There is, there's actually a sort of psychological profile to a good for, forecaster. And Tetlock and his, his co-authors, Barb Mellers and Don Moore, they're all psychologists, and they administer these personality tests to all of these forecasters. So you, you can test people for you know, particular personality traits like narcissism or extroversion or whatever. Um, the personality trait that predicts being a good forecaster is something that they call actively open-minded thinking. So an actively open-minded thinker is the kind of person who really enjoys having a conversation with someone who totally disagrees with them. Not because they enjoy a good argument and they want to win, but because they, they really want to be educated and that person could prove them wrong and really, and really teach them something about the world and, and help improve their, their knowledge. An actively open-minded thinker is the kind of person who's always willing to change his or her mind. Always, you know, that's never a sign of weakness. That's always uh, you know, a sign of um, you know, questing for the truth. And I don't know about you. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously tremendously open-minded. I, I just love it when people disagree with me. I find that really refreshing in the, the quest for a higher truth. And you're probably all the, all the same. But curiously, there are some people out there. It's extraordinary, I know. There are some people out there who get a bit defensive when people disagree with them and who don't like to change their minds. Uh, and those people, uh, rare as they might be, those people don't make very good forecasters. All of which brings us back to John Maynard Keynes and Irving Fisher. So we've got these two great men who, let's be frank, have both failed. At the moment of their failure, they make different decisions. And the decisions that they make turn out to shape very profoundly the rest of their lives. So let me tell you the decision that Keynes made, and I'm going to speculate a bit about why he made the decision. And the decision is very easy to summarise. 1929, Wall Street crash. Actually, the, there was a stock market crash in the UK that came about a month earlier. Similar situation. What did John Maynard Keynes do? John Maynard Keynes changed his mind. And John Maynard Keynes changed his investment strategy which must have been kind of awkward to explain to the fellows of King's College, Cambridge. But he realised that this approach that he had of predicting the booms and the busts and going in and out of different economic sectors in anticipation of those booms and busts, it wasn't working. 
and he had to do something else. And in fact, the investment strategy he adopted, we would now credit to Warren Buffett. It's a Warren Buffett-style value investing strategy. So he would find a few companies where he said, well, you know, this company seems to be fairly cheap, good dividend yield, good business model, defensible competitive position, management who I respect. It doesn't really matter whether the economy is booming or busting. In the long term, this company is going to be fine. And he invested in those sorts of stocks. And he, he called them his pets which is very much a Warren Buffett uh, sort of attitude to this kind of thing. In fact, Warren Buffett often <laughs> quotes Keynes, because Keynes was a very quotable kind of guy. He often quotes Keynes as espousing the same sort of philosophy. Well, you might ask, well, what, what were the results of this value-investing approach? Well, when Keynes died in 1946, it had 25 years of managing the investment portfolio of King's College, Cambridge. And he had outperformed the market by an average of 6% a year, which basically means that roughly every 11 years, you double your investment relative to the market benchmark. So that's pretty good. So by the end of the 25 years, you have got about five or six times as much money as if you, compared to what you would have if you had invested in a passive tracker fund. That's not bad. It's not Warren Buffett. But I'll, I would take that. <laughs> so you might ask yourself, well, why did he, why did he make that decision? Uh, I think there were a couple of clues. So number one, remember, Keynes lost a fortune in 1920. So Keynes kind of knew that, you know, swings and roundabouts, ups and downs. So I don't think he took it too personally. In fact, when he was originally writing to his father and asking for money that very first time, he wrote, and actually there is a great deal of risk in this, but win or lose, this high-stakes gambling amuses me. <laughs> Which, as a pro tip, if you're trying to raise money from investors, that's not what you say, okay? <laughs> but, you know, he was, a, he was a charismatic guy. They gave him the money anyway. But in, in a paradoxical way, maybe that was the right attitude. It's a game it's a gamble. I can't be sure of success. Because then at that moment, when, when you start losing, you're not so personally invested in it. You don't take it so personally. You can say, well, okay, uh, maybe I've made a mistake. Maybe I need to do something else. Maybe I need an alternative approach. Um, and there was also, he had, a, he had this view that the economy itself couldn't be predicted. There's a very, very famous quote by Keynes about forecasting, when he talks about long-term interest rates, he talks about the price of copper, he talks about the prospect of a European war 20 years hence, which of course was a prospect that, that came true. And he says, about these matters, there is no scientific basis on which to form any probability whatsoever. We simply do not know. And that feeling that the universe was somehow imponderable Maybe that helped Keynes to say, okay, I'll try something else. There's one other thing that I think helped Keynes, and that was the fact that come 1928, he was actually not doing that well anyway. So when he benchmarked himself against the market portfolio, he was down by 17% over the course of the 1920s. Now, that, that's not a disaster. It's not great. And that must have provoked thoughts that maybe this whole strategy he had of predicting the business cycle and, and investing on that basis, maybe that just wasn't working. And if it wasn't working, Keynes was already mentally, psychologically prepared to change his mind.
talk about Fisher. See, Fisher was in a really difficult situation. Fisher had been borrowing money and investing all the way through the 1920s. He got a nice car, and a nicer car, then an even nicer car, then an even nicer car with a chauffeur. As I mentioned, he renovated the family mansion. He, was, he enjoyed having money. He knew what it was like not to have money, and he enjoyed having money as a marker of success. But also, he was very publicly associated with his stock market bullishness. So he, he made various pronouncements about how the stock market was going to go higher. And these pronouncements were super famous. He was the most famous economist in the world. They were on the front page of the New York Times, no problem. You know. Think about when Paul Krugman or Joe Stiglitz today. Everybody was listening to what he said. Everyone was paying attention to what he said. And if you know only one thing about Irving Fisher, I am willing to bet the one thing you know about Irving Fisher is this. Two weeks before the Wall Street crash began, Irving Fisher said, stocks have reached a permanently high plateau. And everybody with the slightest interest in the economy in the country read those words. And then the Wall Street crash began. And so Fisher was totally associated with this. So there was one newspaper editorial that blamed the crash on the president, the treasury secretary, and Irving Fisher. That's how famous he was. And so he was in this situation where it was very hard to change his mind. I mean, let me give you a, a parallel. This has nothing to do with Fisher or Keynes or economics or anything. It's a curious thing that happened in the United States in 1953, late 1953. A group of people gathered together in a, uh, the living room of a house in Chicago. And they were slightly oddly dressed. So the men had removed the, the metal from their zippers and the buttons. And the women had taken the metal off their bra clips. This wasn't because it was a weird swingers thing. This was, beca- this was because they couldn't have any metal on their bodies. And the reason they couldn't have any metal on their bodies was because that at midnight, aliens from the planet Clarion were going to descend they would take all of those people, all of those true believers, into their flying saucer, and they would whisk them away to Clarion, and then they would destroy the world. That would happen at dawn. So th- there they all were. They were, they, were, uh, <coughs> they were cultists, and they were influenced by the cult leader, a woman called, uh, called Dorothy Martin. Uh, and many of them had totally bought into this. So they had, they had quit their jobs. They had said goodbye to their husbands or their wives, their children. They'd given away all their money. They were all there waiting for the aliens. Now, this, thing, this sort of thing happens from time to time. But what, what's really interesting about this is on this particular occasion, a psychologist called Leon Festinger had joined the cult. He had convinced them that he believed the whole thing about the aliens, and he was there that night to see what happened when the aliens didn't come. I mean, I was sort of, I was sort of spoiling the story. The aliens don't come. Okay, just to... <laughs> Sorry. Contains spoilers. Sorry. <laughs> so, Festinger... So, you might think, so what's going to happen when the aliens don't come? So, you might think that the more you've invested in this idea, the angrier you are going to be when the idea is proved wrong. 
It's going to be like, it's like, uh, you know, someone, someone that you've, you're totally devoted to has an affair versus someone who, you know, you kind of snogged once at a party, you know, goes and sleeps with someone else. You know, it's like the more committed you are, the more furious you're going to be, the more the angrier you're going to be about this. You totally committed yourself to this idea and this idea has betrayed you. And Festinger said, I don't think that's what's going to happen. So Festinger was working on this idea that he called cognitive dissonance. And he said, he said his theory was, it'll be so painful to accept that you were that wrong, that you will not accept that you were that wrong, and you will find some way to continue believing what you believed all along. In fact, your, your beliefs may even become stronger. So that was his theory, and so there he is, sitting in the sitting room, they're all sitting around, they're waiting for the aliens, waiting for the aliens. Waiting for the aliens. Midnight. One o'clock in the morning. No aliens. Two o'clock. No aliens. People are stunned. Sleep deprived. Exhausted. And some people in the group, people who hadn't been totally you know, bought into the idea, who were just sort of curious, just wanted to hedge their bets on the whole aliens thing. Eh, kind of, eh, just slowly walking away. But the core group remains. Three o'clock, no aliens. Four o'clock, no aliens. At 20 past four, Dorothy Martin, the cult leader, breaks down and cries. She's sobbing. Everybody is looking at her. They cannot move. And then she reaches down, picks up a pen, and announces that the aliens have taken control of her hand (laughs) and they're sending a message. And she starts to write. And the message is this. That because of the faith shown by that small group of pure, true believers on that night, the aliens have decided to spare the planet Earth. (laughs) They won't be destroying anything, and there will be no need for a lift to the planet Clarion. And just as Festinger predicted, at that point, belief surged up and was actually stronger in many cases than it had ever been before. So this particular cult, they'd never been terribly evangelical. They hadn't been terribly public about their views. They just quietly believed, you know, well, the aliens are going to come. Um, but they were out on the street. They were stopping people on street corners. Have you heard the good news? Aliens are not going to destroy the world. <laughs> they were sent out press releases. So they ab- absolutely redoubled their faith in Dorothy Martin, who died in the 1990s, by the way, with people still believing in the planet Clarion. There's a website you can go. They're, they're called the Seekers. They're still going. Festinger was right. The, the more strongly you hold that belief, the more difficult it can be to back away from the shattering evidence that you were wrong. You will just find excuses to keep believing. 
So there we are. Poor Irving Fisher. He has sunk his professional reputation as a forecaster, as a journalist, as an economist, and he sunk his money into the belief that stocks are going higher. All the way down, it takes four years for them to reach the bottom. All the way down, Irving Fisher keeps writing articles, pamphlets, even books, saying, it's just a phase. The lunatic fringe has been you know, sh- shaken out. It's just the froth coming off the top of the market. Um, there's great value out there. And he believed it too. So he kept borrowing and he kept investing. <coughs> so for example, those shares he had in Remington Rand, the company that bought the index visible, the, the Rolodex, $58 a share before the crash began. $28 a share six months into the crash. And Irving kept buying. And by the end of the crash, $1 a share. Uh, Sylvia Nassar, who wrote a great history of economic thought, she said about Fisher, his stubbornness, his overconfidence, and his optimism betrayed him. You can feel too positive about the world, and perhaps you can feel too positive about the predictability of the world. Poor Irving saying that the, the sagacious businessman is always forecasting. What a contrast with Keynes, who said, we simply do not know. And Fisher lost pretty much everything. He had to move out of the mansion. He, he, leased it. he sold it to Yale and he persuaded them to let him live there on a low rent. But in the end, he couldn't even afford the rent. He was preparing to move out. His wife died of a heart attack. And so Irving moved into a small flat in New York. He owed $10 million in today's money to his brokers and to the tax man. He borrowed that money from his, uh, his wife's sister, relying again on the Hazard family fortune, completely humiliating. And his, the rest of his life, he always believed he'd find some way, he'd invent some new invention, there'd be another bestseller, there'd be another index visible, he'd get the money, he'd pay it back. And when his sister-in-law died, she forgave him everything. So they had the final embarrassment. Meanwhile, Keynes, in his last great act, advising Churchill during the war before going on to negotiate the foundation of the modern monetary system, the International Monetary Fund, the, the World Bank at the Bretton Woods Conference. And there's this, this final uh, banquet in the Bretton Woods con- uh, Conference where Keynes is to give a speech. And as he walks there, everyone knows the great man, he's got heart trouble. He walks in there and everyone in the room stands to applaud the greatest economist in the world. And why was he the greatest economist in the world? Well, for one reason, among many others, he hadn't just bankrupted himself in the Wall Street crash. kind of helps. Fisher and Keynes died within a few months of each other, shortly after the war. And um, Keynes' last words apparently were, I should have drunk more champagne. (laughs) But uh, I will remember him for something he's often uh, credited with saying which is, when the facts change, I change my opinions. What do you do? And I wish he'd had the opportunity to teach that lesson to Irving Fisher. Thank you very much for listening.
Thank you. You're very kind. We, we, um, we have quite a bit of time for questions. Uh, I think this is all being recorded for posterity, uh, so could you please wait for a microphone? Uh, put your hands up if you have a question. Let me take two or three. Any questions down here? Not yet. There's a, there's a lady there. Can we get a microphone to the lady there? There's a gentleman there. Okay, let's take these two. You first, please. Hello. Uh, good evening. Um, my name is Ivana. I'm a recent graduate from LSE. I was wondering, uh, who do you see today as representing those two extreme. So do you have a fisher of today and Keynes of today in terms of their ability to change their opinions when the fact, facts change? Okay, thank you very much. And you, sir? Hi, I'm Ramin, a member of public. Uh, does economics need to uh, predict the future to be considered as a science? And the second question is that, do you know any famous economist who has changed his mind after 2008 crash? Okay, thank you very much. Um, so, do we have a Fisher and a Keynes today? I think we sort of all we all have in mind uh, our own examples of, of Irving Fisher. The world seems to be full of Irving Fishers. I've, I feel so sad for Irving Fisher. The man was a genius. He was a, truly a great man. Seems to have been a great human being, apart from the eugenics thing, which you know, it's not great, but you know, it was of its time. Um, a utterly uh, profound economist. And, and he just lost everything. And so uh, most people don't get those comeuppances. Most people are able to basically just be wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong, and it never, it never really seems to matter. But I think that we should hold ourselves to the standard of, uh, not of either Fisher or Keynes, but that uh, the Good Judgment Project espouses, of constantly just going back and saying, well, was I right this time last month? Was I right six months ago? Was I right two years ago? And most of us don't make these public forecasts, but just kind of, well, you know, should I revise my views about uh, global income inequality, climate change, you know, whatever, the effectiveness of privatization of the National Health Service, whatever, in the, in the, the light of evidence. Um, I think the tricky thing about that is that very often we don't gather the information that we need to be able to, to revise our views. So if we think about the policymaking process... Uh, it very often involves politicians saying, we're going to do this new thing, and it's going to be great, uh, in an unspecified way. We don't specify how it's going to be great. And then the opposing uh, team say, no, that's not going to be great, that will suck, in an unspecified way. We don't have too many details about how it's going to suck. And then we perform a totally uh, non-scientific, non-randomized, non-blind uh, controlled trial. We normally do it all at once. Uh, everything changes in the world all the time, so you don't really learn anything. Nobody wants to gather the data because everybody is afraid the data will prove them wrong. Uh, and it would be hard work for journalists like me if there were numbers because, oh, I would have to do, you know, adding up and all kinds of stuff, and that's always hard. Um, much better to say, oh, well, minister, last week you said this, but two years ago you said a different thing, and so uh, I'm, I'm not interested in uh, figuring out whether you've actually changed your views in a useful way, all I need to say is you've changed your views. And so as a lazy journalist, I can just accuse you of inconsistency and job done. So... No, we do, we do not encourage the kind of data that, the kind of data gathering that is necessary for people to change their minds, not just about forecasts, but about all kinds of things. Uh, and we punish people for inconsistency, and we shouldn't punish people for inconsistency. We should, we should celebrate uh, U-turns if the U-turn involves 
making a mistake, realizing you made a mistake, and then stopping making the mistake. It's clearly something that, in principle, we all agree with that. In principle, oh yeah, that sounds like a tremendous idea, but um, but that's norm- not normally the way that it tends to be expressed during our political discourse. Um, does economics need to predict the future to be regarded as a science? I I don't know whether it's helpful for economics to regard itself as a science. I'm I'm not I'm not even quite sure what that would mean. What I would say is, ideally, economics is the study of the economy, and the economy is a very, very interesting, complex, and multifaceted thing. And that the proper study of the economy involves anthropological perspectives and sociological perspectives. It involves a lot of stat- statistics. Uh, you need uh, networks. Just, we were just discussing backstage the new network economics and agent-based modeling, complexity theory, as well as more traditional tools of economics. All of these things are necessary if we are to understand the economy. And some of them, you might psychology as well, various things. So some of them you might say are scientific. So you could say, well, there are certain sorts of psychological approaches that are scientific because you can run them in a laboratory, you can conduct a controlled experiment, and you can replicate and so on. Uh, um, and some of them aren't scientific. It doesn't, I mean, you know, writing a novel isn't scientific. It doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Um, so is it necessary to forecast to be a science? I don't, I don't know. I mean, do we know... Do we know whether it's going to rain in London next month? No. Does that tell us that meteorology is not a science? I don't think so. I think we would say meteorology is a science. Um, It's just a science with with limitations. Have economists changed their mind uh, about things? Uh, I think the the simple cop-out answer is, well, some have and some, some haven't. I think one of the things I find slightly frustrating about the conversation after the crash is the crash is really complicated. There are lots and lots of things going on. Uh, Very few people understood, forget forecasting it, very few people understood what was happening while it was happening. Very few of us really understood, well, nobody understands all of what was happening even now. You're just piecing together different pieces of the jigsaw. And it's very easy for people with a particular perspective to say, well, if only more people had my perspective, then we wouldn't have had a crash. So just to give you a few examples, so if only people had paid attention to inequality, we wouldn't have had a crash. I don't believe that, but I do believe that it's valid to pay attention to inequality. And I think it's, it's plausible that maybe inequality possibly had a role in the crash. Um, you say, if only people had stopped bankers getting bonuses, we wouldn't have had a crash. Well, that's super simplistic, really simplistic. It's outrageous that regulators seem to do nothing other than focus on bankers' bonuses. As there's nothing else wrong with the world. Um, but you know, did the way bankers' bonuses were paid have an influence on the crash? Well, yeah, maybe it did. Um, if only people had formed, uh, paid more attention to the way that uh, bubbles form and the psychology of bubble formation... Well, you know, maybe it's kind of interesting, it's important. But on the other hand, we learnt an awful lot about the psychology of bubbles in 2000 and 2001, the dot-com boom and the dot-com crash. But that did not derail the world economy. So there was something else going on that wasn't directly connected with the psychology of bubbles, and so on and so on. So there are lots of things that, that we can learn, but I don't think there's this one big lesson that anybody should learn. I mean, one of the lessons that, that I've learned is... Uh, you know, the, the world economy is more complicated than any of us think. It's certainly more complicated than I think. And the details matter more. 
very easy as an economist to deal in abstractions. That economy, economics is good at abstractions. Abstractions can be extremely helpful. But the nitty-gritty of you know, exactly what is written in the clauses of these credit default swaps sometimes turns out to be super-duper important. And we, as a profession, weren't interested enough in that sort of thing. There's <coughs> uh, a lady there with a question. Hands up for other questions. There's a lady up there with a question. One more, and a lady there. So can we, can we get the microphone to you and to you? Hi, my name is Rachel Cunliffe. I write for a new site called CapEx, and we follow you a lot. Um, two, two questions. If you can, if you will, if you're prepared to do so, are there any predictions you can make about the uh, very immediate uh, short-term future of Greece and the euro, yep. and if you're not prepared to do that, uh, what do you think that the, the pundits and the economists are missing from their simplistic predictions, and what should we be looking out for? Okay, thank you. Uh, lady there. Um, my name's Sanam Musharraf, and I come from Pakistan. Um, and my question is moreover related to the present and the future that you mentioned and that individuals do have influence, and this influence can also trigger uh, bigger problems, those who follow or believe in such people, as you mentioned. Um, I've seen it in the case of a developing country that millions, their lives are at stake at the hands of few in power. But what you mention here is intellectual influence, and how can a disaster be prevented because they are individuals with frailties as, a, as well. Um, I'm slightly lost and confused because the masses give their lives in the hands of those few who make small mistakes for themselves but greater mistakes for generations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, there was a lady there. Can we get a, a microphone to you as well? Um, my name's Daphne, and I have a question regarding Fisher and Keynes. Um, would the differences in situation have made any difference to their changes of approach, considering one was from the UK and one was from the US? Okay, thank you. Okay, um, so let, let me ask that, that, answer that question first. I mean, I don't know, I think it's the simple answer. I don't know whether there's a US-UK perspective. I think it's always tempting to uh, lump people into these big sort of cultural categories and say, well, you know, Americans are like this and Brits are like that. Uh, I think that's um, very occasionally helpful, but usually leads us astray. I do think the psychology of... The, there were two separate things going on. So Fisher and Keynes were different kinds of people with different sorts of beliefs about the world. So Fisher had this belief in scientific progress. Uh, Keynes was much more, well, you know, it's complicated and who knows. Um, but also, I think probably more important is the, co the, the situation they found themselves in. So Keynes was privately embarrassed uh, and had been somewhat embarrassed over some time about the investment performance. Fisher was publicly embarrassed, more highly leveraged, <coughs> more exposed, and had been looking like a genius up until about a week before the Wall Street crash, or well, a day before the Wall Street crash. So their context was probably more important in, in determining you know, why one changed his mind and why one didn't. I should say about Fisher, by the way, it's easy to make him sound like a, just a stubborn old idiot. Um, 
He very quickly after the crash produced a brilliant account of why the U.S. was in a depression and you know, first-hand experience of being in debt, the dynamics of debt and how debt interacted with deflation. And so he was he was still thinking he was still super super sharp, but just it it just took too long for him to realise that he was he was backing the wrong horse as far as uh, as far as the stock market was concerned. Um, so what do we do? What do we do about uh, demagogues? What do we do about uh, people who just have too much influence and who wield it in a selfish way. That is a very, uh, very, very big question. Um, Let me just emphasize one small thing that I think ties back to other themes in my talk, which is the importance of dissent. It's really vital that we have systems, whether we're talking about a marriage, or a corporation, or a country, a political system, systems that allow people to disagree with each other. Dissent is incredibly important in saving us from ourselves. There's a big psychological literature on the value of minority dissent. So it's, it's not just about respecting the views of people who disagree with us and, and not kind of publicly flogging them or all the other terrible things that have happened to people who disagree with us. Um, But also, if you listen to the person who disagrees with you, that person can maybe make you smarter, make you make better decisions. There's a wonderful book by Scott Page called The Difference. Scott Page is a complexity scientist, just all about how when you put a team together, rather than have the ten top professors who all know the same stuff, have a whole range of people who may not be nearly as sharp, but who have a different range of perspectives and different things they bring to the table, they will probably make better decisions as a whole. Because the diversity, in the end, trumps the sheer ability. So (coughs) dissent is important. It's not just important because we respect other people and their right to free speech, but dissent is important because if you listen to the uncomfortable thing that someone is telling you, uh, maybe actually you might learn something. (coughs) Am I going to make a prediction about Greece and the Eurozone? No. <laughs> Sorry. Um, how are we doing? We've got time for, for a couple more questions. There's, uh, there's a lady there, gentleman there, Alistair, I recognise. There's a lady there, and there's a gentleman with a beard uh, next to her. So let's take four questions, and that, that'll be it, I'm afraid. And then, then I can sign books from the wonderful Pages of Hackney. They're great books, perfect present for everybody. Um, so let's uh, start. Who's got the microphone now? Yes. Um, hello, my name's Vera, and I was just wondering, um, you said that Fisher's fatal flaw was his stubbornism and, op- and optimism. How do you think... How do you think that's influenced forecasters now? And do you think they've kind of learned from his mistakes? Or has it kind of progressed into a new forward-thinking movement? Thank you very much. Could you pass the microphone just forward? Thank you. Hello, Tim. Alistair Kelman. Um, I was a visiting fellow here at the LSE some years ago. Um, quick point. What do, you th- do you think it's now harder for us to learn from our mistakes in view of the fact that now data lasts forever and that we're recording everything and it is far cheaper to keep data than to get rid of it. Okay, thank you very much. So uh, the two people up there, yes. Hi, uh, super interesting, thank you. Um, I think to some extent you're probably preaching to the choir because most people agree with you here. Um, and I'm wondering when it comes to convincing decision makers who are probably more skeptical and less 
keen to admit to things like overconfidence and cognitive dissonance, um, what do you think are ways to to get them on board with these ideas? Okay, thank you. And the gentleman just, just there. Thank you very much. That was really interesting. Uh, my question to you is a lot less intellectual than the previous one. Um, what sort of guiding principles do you use when you determine how to invest your own money? <laughs> very good question. Okay. That's the, that's the easiest one. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a total uh, passive tracker kind of person. So I don't know anything about the economy and... Uh, <laughs> Or at least, well, actually, there's a more serious point there. I I actually do take the efficient markets hypothesis seriously. The efficient markets hypothesis is this idea that basically you can't beat beat the market. The price of a a share or any other financial asset already contains all the information you could possibly want. It's all right there. Okay, So you don't need to worry about it. It's like betting on a horse race. You don't need to know anything about the horse uh, because um, the favourite... Uh, the one with the shortest odds, that is the horse that's most likely to win, and the one with the long odds, that's not going to win, and they all sort of come out in the wash, and you'll lose a roughly equal amount of money no matter which, what thing you do. And similarly with stock market investing, where we hope you'll make a little bit of money, but it'll be the same no matter what you do. So just kind of don't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, if people have taken that, that's clearly not quite true. And the efficient markets hypothesis is not true. But I think it's it's worth taking very seriously. And if we take it a bit more seriously before the crash, people blame the crash for the efficient markets hypothesis. I don't understand that. If we take it more seriously before the crash, one of the things we would have avoided is investments in these, uh, these really, really weird assets that the regulator said was super-duper safe, but were paying a really, really high rate of return. The efficient markets hypothesis says they're not safe. They're not safe. And you know what? They weren't safe. So, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a, the market's not perfect, but it's smarter than me. So I'm a passive investor kind of guy. Um, how do we sell uh, these ideas, this humility to decision makers? It is difficult because, to be honest, if you were humble, why on earth would you put yourself up to run the country? Uh, <laughs> it's not going to happen. <coughs> So I, I discussed this a few, a few years ago because I, a previous book of mine was actually all about, as Alistair mentioned, all about learning from mistakes called ADAPT. Uh, and I talked about the experimental process and how important experiments are and the scientific method and we should have more experiments. And I spoke to a guy called David Halpern. Uh, David Halpern was an advisor to Tony Blair. He was in the cabinet office. Then he uh, ended up being an advisor to David Cameron. Uh, and he's now working at uh, Nestor. National Endowment of Science, Technology and the Arts, I think it is. Uh, And this idea uh, he's pushing now is of randomised trials. Now, when I spoke to him, it's probably 2009. Uh, He was in, in, uh, well, maybe slightly later. He hadn't started working for Cameron. Um, I I, I would say, well, why don't we we have more randomised trials? Why don't we reform schools by conducting trials about you know, what works, what reading method works, class size works, and so on? That would be really, really helpful. Teachers could share best practices with each other. It would be, be great, be a real resource. Just like doctors share the results of trials with other doctors, teachers could share the results of trials with other teachers. It would be great. He said, well, the problem is, Tim, that uh, all of these trials take years to produce results. And so you, you, the minister who commissions the trial isn't the minister who benefits from the trial result. 
And so we had this conversation. I was saying, well, you know, there must be some way of, uh, of selling it. You know, you could go to a minister, David. You could say, minister, this is all about your legacy. And you wanted to know what could be done about the school system. And when you came in, there was no data. But when your successor comes in, there will be data. And that'll be your legacy. And, yada, yada, yada. and uh, anyway, he went away. He totally ignored that. And he came up with a much better idea. And his idea was, let's run randomized trials that give really quick results. So started experimenting with things like, how do we write letters to people who haven't paid their taxes? Or how do we phrase that letter? And you can do, do a randomized trial, mail out lots of different letters, lots of different people. And some people get these letters and they suddenly start paying their taxes and other people don't. Now that's really simple, but you also get results within weeks. And then you can go to the minister and say, look, minister, we just made 125 million pounds. Uh, can we have an extension of our funding to go and run some more, some more trials? So little things are happening. Um, where there are now trials that are being run at arm's length, funded by government, by the Education Endowment Foundation, at about 70 randomized trials of different interventions in schools. Now, you, you won't often hear the Education Secretary talking about that, but it is happening, so that's progress. Um, so have we, have we learned from uh, Irving Fisher's mistake? I think, actually... There are two separate potential problems. So one is the problem of no consequences whatsoever. I think a lot of modern forecasters forecast in an entirely consequence-free environment. So it's just talk. It's all hot air. No one ever comes and, and criticizes them for it. And you make one sort of mistake when that's the situation. And then Fisher's problem was the consequences were too great. Everybody was paying attention. He personally was losing millions of dollars. Uh, and so he just couldn't change the position. He paid himself into the corner. So I think that it, it, we've got to walk a fine line. We want consequences for bad forecasts, but if you make the consequences too severe, then people just get too stubborn. The cognitive dissonance sets in. And, and uh, finally, uh, Alastair asked, uh, is it harder to learn from our mistakes because, because there's more data around? Uh, so the simple answer to that is, well, obviously not. That can't possibly be true. But I think the subtler answer is, well, maybe it is. Now, if we were perfectly rational human beings, if we were able to make peace with our previous failures, more data is, is just better. You know, more information about whatever we did wrong in the past, and that gives us more data about how to fix it in the future. And there, there, there's just no way that destroying data or having less data is going to be harmful. But from a more psychological perspective, you know, maybe things are more difficult. And I certainly think just the culture of being uh, a politician now. You, more and more now, we're, we're going back, so politicians have now grown up in the age of social media. You, know, you, can see, you, you start to see, well, was it, was it uh, Will Straw was you know, caught smoking joints or whatever. And suddenly all of these things, we realize actually that um, politicians, just like the rest of us, kind of take heroin and send photos of their bits to each other. And like, <laughs> and, well, I don't know about you guys, but... Well, you know. <laughs> I think we can all honestly say we've been there. Um, and that, I think, in the short term is unhelpful. Maybe in the long term, that's going to help. Because maybe in the long term, we realize, actually, uh, politicians aren't that different to us. And maybe if we realize politicians aren't that different to us, then maybe they'll start making smarter decisions. The smartest decision any of you could make tonight is to buy a signed copy... LAUGHTER
and the undercover economist strikes back. But I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to sit down and hand back over to our chairman. Thank you all very much for listening.